And so we find in chapter 6 now, verse 1, and I shall begin reading here, "...and the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months." Again, I don't want to be irreverent, but it was like having a hot potato. One city had it, Gath, and they didn't want it. The idol of Dagon fell over. Just the stump of the idol is left there. And that's not a very satisfactory place to worship, just the stump of an idol. An idol's bad enough. Then we find that Gath sent it over to Ekron, and Ekron, they've got something on their hands, and they'd like to get rid of it. We are told now in verse 2, And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to its place. They said, We'd like to get rid of it. We'd like to return it. But how shall we do it? And they said, If ye send away the ark of God of Israel, send it not empty. And so they were to send an offering. And they put on it that which speaks of the vileness of the worship of these people, the Philistines. great many people wonder why God put them out of that land. It was his land. It was right on the crossroads of the world. And any people that would influence the people of the world, and God put them out because of the vileness of their worship. They had turned from him, and they'd had an opportunity to turn to him. Now, we're told here they sent along here five golden hemorrhoids, hemorrhoids, if you please, and five golden mice. Now, they send back with it these that are tokens of the vileness of their worship. And I'm not about to go into any detail on radio today relative to how vile both of these were. And so they send it back, and they did this in verse 11. And they laid the ark of the Lord upon the cart, and the coffer with the mice of gold, and the images of their emeroids. My, how vile can you be? And the kind, the cattle, took the straight way to the path of Beth Shemesh. They took it to the border, and I imagine they put a lash on the back of the kind, and they sent it down the road, back into the land of Israel. And we find that, verse 13, they of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Well, what is it? Well, it's a box. That's all it ever was. But it was there in the holy place where God met the people. But he's not meeting them there now. They've turned from him. And we're told in verse 14, And the cart came into the field of Joshua, a Bethshemite, and stood there, where there was a great stone, and they clave the wood of the cart, and offered the kind of burnt offering unto the Lord. They wouldn't accept anything you see for themselves from the Philistines. Of course, they had to be commended for that. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the coffer that was on it, wherein the jewels of gold were, and put them on a great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices the same day unto the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. They saw that the ark was received back, and they were glad to get it off of their hands." Now, the very interesting thing is that these things that the people of Israel, 
dead now reveals again that they're still far from God. And God put a judgment upon the man of Bathshemesh. Why? Let me read verse 18. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both the fenced cities of country villages, even unto the great stone of Abel, whereunto they set down the ark of the Lord, which stone remaineth unto this day in the field of Joshua, the Bathshemite. And he smote the men of Bathshemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord, even he spoke of the people, fifty thousand and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Bethshemesh said, Who's able to stand before this holy Lord God? And whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of of jerem saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come ye down and fetch it up to you. Now, when it returns back to Israel, they are having their problems with it. And they are doing that which God had strictly forbidden, that the ark was to be seen only by the high priest, and he entered only once a year. He put the cover down on it. Now, this is strict disobedience of these people to God. It's not that they looked in the ark and saw something. That's not the point. They are definitely disobeying God in a very definite way. And it reveals the fact, they say now that God brings judgment, they're superstitious. They said, we want to get rid of the ark. And they sent up and said, you come get it. In other words, Israel is not ready to receive the ark. The fact of the matter is, they want to transfer it up to Kirjith Jerem because the people of Israel are not yet prepared to return to God. This is very important for us to see. They're not ready to turn to God at all. Now, that brings us to chapter 7. Now, notice what happens. And the man of Kirjith Jerem came, fetched up the ark of the Lord, they brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar's son to keep the ark of the Lord. Now, how long was it there? Listen to this. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kirjith Jerem, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, after twenty years the people begin to turn to God. They begin to turn from Balaam and Ashtaroth to serve the living God. Now notice, it took them 20 years to come to the place where they wanted God, wanted to turn to God. And here we see that at this time, 20 years of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, this is the beginning, actually, of Samuel's great ministry. And Samuel spoke unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. Prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and served the Lord only. 
You see, they were in idolatry, friends. They had turned from the living and true God. And they were being defeated one battle after another until it was becoming old hat to them. And they were very much discouraged. Now they were beginning to lament after the Lord. Oh, we need to get back to the Lord. Maybe today there is a heart hunger in the hearts of many of God's people of saying we're tired of eating the hus that the pigs eat in the far country. We want to get back to the Father's house, and we have to come through the door of the Word of God. I hope that's true. I'd like to believe that it is true. Now we read in verse 5, And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I'll pray for you and to the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water, poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said, There we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. So what we have here, actually, is Samuel a prophet, and Samuel is also the judge of the nation Israel. Now, we find here Israel turning from Balaam and Ashtaroth, They're turning back to God, and this man Samuel is praying for them. And they confess their sins. That's the way back for God's people. I don't think there's any other way back. I hear all of the methods today that if we do this and we do the other thing, God will bless. Well, let's just put it right down in bold letters and tell it like it is. What God's people need to do is to go to God in confession of their sins. And they need to see themselves in the light of the Word of God. And if we see ourselves, we see that we've come short of the glory of God. And we then can find out the blood of Jesus Christ. God's Son will just keep on cleansing us from all sin, and we can go in confession. Now, will you notice in verse 8, "...and the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines." And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering... The Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came unto beth Car. Now God gives them a victory. And this is the first victory that they have had in a long, long time, by the way. And now God gives them that victory. And by the way, it's a great victory that God has given to them at this particular time. These people have lapsed into idolatry. They were in sullen rebellion. They began to turn to God. And Samuel exacted a confession and promised to return to God. Now the result, God gave Israel a signal victory over the Philistines. Now, will you notice, verse 12. Now, this is a very important verse, by the way. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen. He called the name of it Ebenezer. 
Now that means a stone of help, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Now this is a very interesting stone. I look at it as a stone of remembrance. It looked back to the past. It was a stone of recognition, a stone for the present, and it was a stone of revelation, a stone for the future. Hitherto, up to this point, up to right now, God has helped us. And it's always customary for us to look back over the past. Remember the Lord said through Paul to the Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work, and you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, has God brought you up to this point? Is he leading you today? Is he guiding you today? Is he brought you up to this moment? Well, if he has, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. He's brought us up to this point. Well, he's going to continue to do that. And someone has said that memory plays upon the keyboard of the past. And you can retrace your footsteps. And God's given us memories that we can have roses in December. Memory plays on the keyboard of the past. And when it does, I'm sure all of us can say, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. But it's not only that, but that was a stone of recognition. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Oh, Joshua could say, As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, David says, for he is good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And I personally, I want to say so. Oh, the Lord is good, friends. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. The Lord has helped us. And right now, even now, he's the one that's helping us. A businessman said some time ago, He says, you know, the use of time might be likened to the terminology of banking. He says, yesterday's a canceled check. Tomorrow is a promissory note, but today is cash. So spend it wisely. A stone of recognition. Are you recognizing God today in your life? That's what Samuel meant by that Ebenezer stone. It was a stone of revelation, not only hitherto, but henceforth. The Lord is my shepherd. David says, I shall not want. He looked into the future. And someone has said, I am very interested in the future because I expect to spend the rest of my life in the future. And I want to be reasonably sure of what kind of a future It's going to be, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All things do work together for good to those that love God. Dr. Tari always said that Romans 8, 28 was a soft pillar for a tired heart. It's a stone of revelation. It looks into the future, and it was that for the nation Israel. And you can just put this stone down in the history of the nation Israel, for it's written on this stone. You can also put it down in, I think, your life. You can mine. And we need an Ebenezer stone today. And I trust that you have one in your life and that I have one in my life today. Now, let's continue to move on. Verse 13, 
So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And very frankly, this, I think, can be said to be the time, and from here on, that the Philistines never were again as dominant and formidable as they were before this battle. That's actually how significant it was. And this stone now stands in memory. Actually, it was only about three or four miles north by northwest of Jerusalem, actually in sight of the city. Now, will you notice verse 15 of First Samuel 7? And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. This is the story. He is a prophet. He's a judge of Israel. And he went from year to year in circuit. He was a circuit judge to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And you'll notice it's in an area right north of Jerusalem. And he judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. Now, when we come here to chapter 8, we've come to a new section, actually, and I've written over this section, in fact, the rest of these two books of Samuel, Hosea 13.11. And this is the language of Hosea 13.11. I gave thee a king in mine anger, and I took him away in my wrath. Now, Samuel... Again, a great judge, a great man of God. And he was brought up there at the temple where he could see the foolishness of the sons of Eli and that God cut them off. And yet, notice what he does now in chapter 8. It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, this was his mistake. He made his own sons judges to succeed him, and they were wholly unworthy and totally incompetent to do that. Samuel was a great judge. He was a wonderful prophet and a great man of God, but he was sure a failure as a father, just as Eli had been. Now, let me read. Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. These are his sons now. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. They were totally dishonest. Strange, isn't it? Today we have seen so much of that. Several pastors have talked to me about why is it that you see a godly family in your church Godly man, godly woman. And then a son or daughter comes along, becomes a hippie, and becomes immoral, or goes on drugs. And you can't find any explanation for it. Well, Samuel was a great man, God's man. But notice his sons, what they did. Then we're told in verse 4, "...then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together." and came to Samuel under Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. 
Now they ask for a king to make them like all the nations that are round about them. And Israel now, and they had a reason for it, they demanded a king, and they rejected God and Samuel. Israel was, of course, influenced by the surrounding nations to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. Now notice God's answer to this man. He says to him, And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. It was the rejection of God now. And we find here that it does go back to the fact Samuel made his sons judges, and it gave these people an excuse. But God lets him know that it's because they've actually rejected God. That is the real explanation. And they still want a king. Verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people. He rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his city. Now they're going to get, by the way, a king. Again, as it was true in the days of Moses, he granted their requests, but he sent leanness under their souls. Now, friends, I want to begin today in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And we're coming now to this second major section here. First section was Samuel, and now the emphasis has shifted to Saul. And Saul is Satan's man from chapters 9 through 15 here. And I trust you have our notes and outlines. You will find that they are very helpful in this particular section, and we'll be delighted to mail them to you. If you write in and ask for your copy, we have one for you. And we invite you to go through the Bible with us. Now, when you get your first notes that put you on our mailing list, you will receive them after that. Now, as we come today to this ninth chapter, we come to this man, Saul, and he's one of those strange individuals that you meet in the Word of God. It's hard to interpret them. It's hard, very candidly, to quite understand them. That was Balaam, strange individual, wasn't he? A man that seemed to move out of light into darkness and darkness into light. Then you come to this man, Saul, here. Strange individual, difficult to interpret. And then you have the same thing with Judas Iscariot. Then what about Demas? Paul said, Demas hath forsaken, having loved this present world. Well, I can't interpret him at all. That is, to give a dogmatic statement of whether he was saved or lost. These are the strange characters that move across the pages of Scripture that stand in semi-darkness. They come out, as it were, in the light, but like the groundhog, they see their shadow, 
and back into the darkness they move again. Now let's look today at King Saul. And he's not a king when we first meet him here by any means. In fact, I don't think he ever was a king, although he looked like one. And I'm reading now 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerah, the son of Beacorah, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. Now, this is the father of Saul, and he belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, you will recall, was the favorite son of Jacob, and he was the one that when the brothers came back from Egypt and said, we can't go down again without taking Benjamin with us because the man down there said for us not to come. And you will recall that at that particular time, old Jacob said, why, you can't take the boy because if you did and something happened to him, you'd bring my gray hairs down to the grave. These boys protected him and He was the favorite, definitely. You remember when he was born, his mother died, and she said as she died, call his name Benoni, he's the son of my Sarah. But old Jacob looked at him and said, no, I'll need somebody to lean on now. And he saw that little fella, and I think he must have looked like his mother. And he said, no, we'll call him Benjamin. He's going to be the son of my right hand. I'll have to lean on him. And he did. And this seemed to be the favorite tribe, by the way. And you find this tribe under the shadow of Judah when they are in the land here. Now, this man, this first king, comes out of Benjamin, and his name is Saul. Now, let's get acquainted with him. We're told he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel, a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. Now, this boy Saul was handsome. Physically, he looked like a king, but he was not at all. He was just a front. He was just an actor that could play a part. But he, at heart, was never a king. But you see, the people were not choosing one according to character. They were choosing one according to the outward appearance. And that is the reason that right now I think our nation is in the most dangerous position any nation could be in. I mean that the most dangerous enemy we have today is the television. The man that will ultimately control this country is the man that can make a good TV appearance. Why? Because we choose him by the way he looks and the way he talks, and not by his heart. Oh, if we could only have an X-ray instead of the TV and see the true character of the man. And that puts any people in danger. And so the people here of Israel wanted a king. And he was tall. He was handsome. He was fine-looking. Wasn't a finer-looking man in the nation. He was a TV and movie star. And I tell you, he looked the part. And he could play the part, I think, too. But he wasn't at heart. Now, verse 3. And we're told here, And the asses of Kish, Saul's father, was lost. 
And Kish said to Saul, his son, Take now one of the servants with thee, and rise and go seek the asses. I know the Lord has a sense of humor. (laughs) You just can't miss it, because it's in too many places in the Word of God. And here the very interesting thing is that the children of Israel were looking for a king. And what is happening now is this. Saul is out looking for the asses of his father, and the asses of Israel were out looking for a king. And they're bound to get together, friends, and they are. Now, will you notice? And I think the Lord must smile at a thing like this that's taking place. And what a commentary on a human race. Now, will you notice this? He goes down through the tribe, and he is looking for them. And he asks here where they are. Verse 5, I'll just lift out a verse here and there. When they were come to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant that was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses and take thought for us. In other words, they were out looking for them, couldn't find them, and finally Saul said, Let's get back home because we're going to get lost too, and they'll be out looking for us. And he said unto him, Behold, now there is in this city a man of God. He's an honorable man. All that he saith come surely to pass. Now let us go thither, peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. Then said Saul to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring to the man of God. What have we? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shackle of silver. That will I give to the man of God to tell us our way. Before time in Israel, and here is a little note put in here by the Spirit of God that, frankly, is rather helpful. Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come and let us go to the seer, for he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. Now, I think the reason for the change is these men that dealt in necromancy and dealt in spiritism are called seers. God wants a different name for his man. And so now he's called a prophet. That actually and truly makes Samuel the first of the order of prophets, although Moses was a prophet, we're told. But for the order of prophets, this man Samuel can truly be considered the first. Now, the one that they're talking about here, of course, is Samuel. And I drop down now to verse 14. And they went up into the city, and when they were coming to the city, behold, Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. It doesn't mean he's opposed to them. He just met them on the way. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Sometimes the question is asked, just how did God communicate back in the Old Testament when it says the Lord spake? Well, I think when it says the Lord spake, he spake. That is the way that the communication came. It came by word. It's the words of Scripture that are inspired, not thoughts. Words are inspired. And I think that you get inkling of it in a place like this. He spoke in the ear. And what I hear in my ear are words. That's the only thing that makes sense. And that, of course, is what Samuel heard. Now we read verse 16. 
Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin. Thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cries come unto me. Now, God many times answers our request, when actually it's not the best thing for us, but it's because we just keep crying out to the Lord, as he did for Israel. He granted their requests when they wanted meat, but he sent leanness to their souls. And that's the reason prayer should be made in the name of Christ, which means that it must be according to his will and for his glory. All requests should hinge about that very important matter. Now, verse 17, And when Samuel saw Saul... The Lord said unto him, Behold the man whom I spake to thee of, this same shall reign over my people. God now has granted their requests. This is the man. And this man, by the way, was a man that impressed even Samuel. You're going to find out Samuel really regarded this man Saul very highly. He regretted that he didn't make good. Now let me continue to read. Verse 18, Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. That is the prophet. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me into the high place, for ye shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let thee go and will tell thee all that's in thine heart. Verse 20, And as for thine asses that were lost three days ago, Set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? Now, you see, this man Saul was not actually God's choice. Definitely not. It was the people's choice. This man Saul moved among the people, tall, handsome, looked like a king. And the people, when they ask for a king, and now God grants it, why, they say, here's the boy we want. He's our boy. He's the one we want to be king. Now, in verse 21, and listen very carefully to this. And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? He sounds humble. Sounds like Gideon. You remember Gideon said this same thing practically to the angel of the Lord. He said, I belong to the smallest tribe. My family is the smallest family in the tribe, and I'm the smallest person in the family. You can't get them any smaller than me. And Gideon was genuinely and honestly telling the truth. He was frightened to death to begin with, and he was a coward. But this man Saul has no reason to be. They're not fighting anyone at this time. He's been out looking for these long-eared donkeys, and they've already been found. His mission is accomplished. His point is that there's no reason that would prompt him. I personally think we'll see this is definitely false humility. I think Saul felt very much like he was the one that could be king. Now we find here... And Samuel took Saul and his servant, brought them into the parlor, and made them sit in the chiefest place among them that were bidden, which were about thirty persons. You see, apparently the leaders 
were called together, small group. That's the way they tell me that men are put into office today. A little group, a little clique gets together. That's the way sometimes preachers are called. It's the way sometimes officers are chosen. And it can be good, and it can be bad. And so here, not so good. But notice, And Samuel said unto the cook, Bring the portion which I gave thee, of which I said unto thee, set it by thee. And we have here then this formality that they went through. And we are told that Saul did eat with Samuel that day, in verse 25, And when they were come down from the high place unto the city, Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house. They had a conference. And they rose early. It came to pass about the spring of the day that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, Up, that I may send thee away. And Saul arose, and they went out, both of them, he and Samuel, abroad. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant pass on before us. And he passed on. But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. Now, we have the anointing here in chapter 10 of this man Saul. And I begin reading at verse 1. Then Samuel took a vial of oil, poured it upon his head, and kissed him, and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? Now he is anointed to be king. And let's follow down now and see how he's going to move. Verse 2, When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say unto thee, The asses which thou wentest to seek are found. Lo, thy father hath left the care of the asses, and sorroweth for you, saying, What shall I do for my son? Now the boy is lost, as far as the father is concerned. But now Samuel had anointed him, and this was near, all of this took place near the tomb of Rachel, which is in the tribe of Benjamin, which is at Bethlehem, by the way, which is also quite interesting. Now, will you notice that all of this took place? And we come down now to verse 5. We find that this man is moving back home now. This is Saul. And I'm reading, And after that thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass, when thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psalter and tablet and pipe and a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. And now let me read this strange verse. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee. And thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. Now again, I have a question. Was Saul converted? Is this verse the proof of it? Well, for sure it's not a final proof. And I do not believe he was converted. And somebody's going to say, well, you certainly are starting out very much prejudiced against Saul. Well, I'll tell you why. It's not because of what we've gone over. It's what's coming that makes me believe that this man is not genuine, certainly not genuinely converted at all. Now, someone is going to say, but the Spirit of God came upon him, and he was a different man. doesn't say he's a new man. And after all, didn't the Spirit of God come upon Balaam? 
And we find that God several times has used men that we're convinced are not converted. How about Judas? He sent the twelve out. We're told all of them perform miracles. Did Judas perform miracles? Certainly he did. And I do not think you'd claim Judas to be converted. So let's withhold maybe a final decision, although I seem to have already made one. But I'm definitely prejudiced against the man, I must say. Now, let's move on down. And we're told here, as we move on into this area, verse 9, it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all those signs came to pass that day. This man now leaves Samuel, and when he does, do you notice how the Scripture says when he turned his back to go from Samuel? I think when Samuel looked at him and said, Ma, he's a fine fellow. And even a prophet of God could be wrong. Nathan was wrong, as we shall see later on, when he told David to build God a house. God had to intervene there and tell Nathan to go back and correct himself. David's not even about to build God a house. And here, Samuel, as he looks at this man Saul, when he turned his back, my, he would have been able to play in the line of any professional football team. He was a great, big, husky, fine-looking fella, but he was no king at all. Now we're told here that when he began to prophesy, the things he said came to pass. Now we have in verse 11, the word went out, is Saul also among the prophets? You see, here he is, and definitely God is giving him an opportunity. God never withheld anything from him. Now we find, as we move on, I'll drop down now to verse 16. And Saul said unto his uncle, He told us plainly that the asses were found, but of the matter of the kingdom whereof Samuel spake, he told him not. Now Saul kept quiet about that. And Samuel called the people together unto the Lord to Mizpah. And he said unto the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all kingdoms and of them that oppress you, and ye have this day rejected your God. Now, when they asked for a king and took Saul, it meant they were turning their back upon God. That is the thing that we need to note here very definitely. The reception of Saul as king was the rejection of God. Now, I want to drop down even a little bit farther here. Verse 22, Therefore they inquired of the Lord, Father, if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And when Samuel was going to bring Saul out to introduce him to the crowd, this fellow Saul, great big fellow that he was, is like a little baby, a little child who runs and hides himself, and they've got to go find him to bring him out. I say again, this is an evidence of a false modesty. The anointing oil has been poured upon him. And if he is given an opportunity to be a king and to serve God, then let him step out in the open and act like a king. And then this is the first time the cry was uttered when they found him and brought him out. Verse 24, God save the king, and God save the people also. Verse 25, then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom, wrote it in a book, laid it up before the Lord, and Samuel sent all the people away 
every man to his house. And we believe on the basis of this, Samuel wrote the first part of First Samuel. Now today we come to chapter 11, and last time we had some rather harsh things to say about King Saul, although we didn't seem maybe to have sufficient ground for it at the time. All we had was very strong suspicion that this man definitely was not genuine at all. He would have made certainly a good actor, but he never made a good king. Now we find, though, he had a good beginning. We find here in chapter 11, and I'll not go into a great deal of detail, but let me read one or two verses to get us into the atmosphere of this particular section. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for reproach upon all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel, and then if there be no man to save us, we'll come out to thee. Now, this is a very strong and ugly demand that's made upon them, of course, and they need a deliverance. And what is going to happen? We are told in verse 4, Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul, told the tidings in the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now we read in verse 6, And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. He took a yoke of oxen, hewed them in pieces, sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. You notice how he identifies himself with Samuel. I do not think at this particular time the name of Saul could have stood alone, but he identifies himself with Samuel and says, Now for them to come. And they come. They come because of fear, but I think fear in two directions, not only from Saul, but also from the Ammonites and what they would do to them. Now, we are told that Saul and the people, Saul put them in three companies. That's in verse 11. And they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered so that two of them were not left together. And that is really scattering the Ammonites, let me tell you. Not even two of them. They were each man fleeing on his own. And verse 12, And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Now, you see, there was opposition to Saul on the part of some. But Samuel ignored that opposition until the nation is united back of Saul, and now the opposition is dealt with. And Saul said, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Then said Samuel to the people, Come, and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Now we find here in verse 15, 
that all Israel now except Saul is king. I'm reading. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, I'm sure that there's somebody going to say, well, now, preacher, you see, you were wrong. You were very much prejudiced against King Saul. And look, he's making good. And certainly started off on the right foot and seems now to be a great king. But let's keep on. It's too bad maybe that the story doesn't end here, but it doesn't. Now, chapter 12, And Samuel said unto all Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice in all that ye said unto me, and have made a king over you. In other words, this is the swan song of Samuel. Actually, he gives us his autobiography here. He was a remarkable man, and he was succeeded by Saul, and Saul was Israel's choice, and God would still bless the people if they would obey. That was evident. Though this man, Saul, is king, God will give him every opportunity. Now, let's note that in chapter 12 here as we read on. And now, behold, the king walketh before you. That's verse 2. And this is Samuel now giving his swan song. This is his final speech. And I am old and gray-headed, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my childhood until this day. You see, he was brought up there in the tabernacle. This man Samuel's life was a life spent in a fishbowl. The people could see him all the time. And probably no man ever had quite the public life that this man Samuel did. Now, sometimes a man moves into public life today, and the people accept him, and then all of a sudden there comes out a black past and stares him in the face, and the public in the face, and the hero comes falling to the ground. But not Samuel. He was brought as a little boy by his mother, you remember, to the tabernacle. He lived his life before the people. And that's what he says here. And then he puts in this sad note here of a fond father. My sons are with you. <laughs> in other words, why didn't you take them? Why didn't you accept them? He tried to put them in position after him, but God wouldn't have them. These are, again, boys that would not be acceptable to the Lord. But this man Samuel was. Verse 3 now, and this... I believe you'll find is the autobiography of this man. He was a remarkable man. Let me read verse 3. Behold, here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose ass have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind mine eyes therewith? And I will restore it to you. That's a great statement for a man to make who's lived a fishbowl life, who's been before the public, and who's been a judge all those years. Began as a young man when God called him. 
And down through those long years, he's been a judge over that nation. He had many opportunities in that place to become rich, but he didn't become rich. This man Samuel is one of the great men of the Word of God, and yet he is a howling failure as a father. How many public men are even like that today? And how many even Christian folk that are such outstanding Christian leaders and then have a son that is such a failure? It's difficult to see, but that's the way the human family has been moving down through the centuries and the millenniums of the past. Now, will you notice that when he made that statement, it been very easy for some man that had been miffed at a decision that he had handed in to step out and say, well, you certainly weren't fair with me. But nobody stepped out. In fact, verse 4, and I'm reading, and they said, Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that ye have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, He's witness. This man Samuel had a life that could stand public inspection and could be put under the gaze and the hot spotlight of public opinion even. You're a wonderful man of God, by the way. Now Samuel continues, and he rehearses as so many of these great men that God used. Maybe I ought not to call them great men. God made them great, but ordinary men that God made great. And their method was, Moses did it. He rehearsed the history of the people. Joshua had done it. Gideon did it. And now Samuel does it. And you're going to find that when you get to the New Testament, that Stephen, when he went before the Sanhedrin, he rehearsed the history of these people. That's very important, by the way. It's wonderful to be able to say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and move into the future. But it's also... A very wonderful thing to be able to say, not only henceforth, but to say, Hitherto hath the Lord led us. And that is exactly what Samuel is doing again. He's standing again at that Ebenezer, and he's raising that monument again, and he said, Read the story. And that is the way God has led them. Now he moves down in that to their present state and condition. And we have here in verse 13, Now therefore, behold the king whom ye have chosen, and whom ye have desired. And behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. Now Samuel makes it very clear that Saul was the people's choice. Now, I want to be very careful in saying this, but we've been brought up so many of us are made to believe that the voice of the majority, the voice of the people, is the voice of God. May I say to you, the Bible contradicts that. The Bible says it's generally the minority. We're living in a day when we've heard a great deal from the minorities. Well, the very interesting thing is God has always moved in that direction. 
Martin Luther said, though one with God is a majority, and God generally moves with the one. And the people wanted Saul. God is the one who chose David. What a difference when God makes the choice. Now, will you notice verse 14? But because he is the people's choice, God will not reject him. God's going to give him an opportunity. Verse 14, If ye will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. God will bless you, you see. Now, verse 15, But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. And so we find that at this time, Samuel tells it like it is. He says, if you will serve God, God's going to bless you, though you made this choice yourself. But if you do not, judgment will come. Now we find that God does respond to this in a very dramatic and, I think, miraculous way. Now, therefore, stand and see great things which the Lord will do before your eyes. Verse 16. Is it not wheat harvest today? I'll call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, this man Elijah was not the first that could preach up a storm, as I hear some folks say today. He could bring in a thunderstorm. Well, Elijah did it later, but Samuel did it before he did. And this is God's seal, I think, upon Samuel's life. God is putting the great amen on the life of Samuel, that Samuel was definitely God's choice. Now will you note here, verse 19, And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil, to ask us a king. Now, The asking of a king on the part of these people was sin. It was actually rejecting God and wanting someone to rule over them, like the nations round about. Now listen, though, to Samuel as he speaks to these people. Verse 20, Samuel said unto the people, Fear not, you've done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And don't, friends, let past sins spoil your life or past mistakes spoil your life. I don't care who you are and what you've done. May I say to you, don't let the past destroy the future for you and ruin the present. My move out today for God, my Christian friend. Now, we find in verse 21, "...and turn ye not aside." For then shall ye go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. Hold to the Lord. Let the gimmicks alone. Today the church is experimenting with gimmicks, with methods. And they don't seem to realize that it's God today that alone can bless. And we need to hold on to him. And that means to hold on to the word of God I don't think the Word of God needs defending. 
it needs explaining. It needs today to be proclaimed. And that, we believe, is the important thing. We need more of the exclamation point and the declaration, more than we need the question mark today. Now, will you notice as we continue to move down, verse 22, and this is a glorious verse, "...for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake." Have you taken the name of the Lord? Is he your Savior today? Are you resting in him? May I say to you, he says he'll not forsake you. Again, he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. How wonderful he is. And because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Now, when you say today, why did God choose the nation Israel? Don't look to the people, look to God. God says, I did it, and that's enough. And God chose you. And maybe some of your friends are wondering why. But God chose you, and that's enough. And God chose me. Oh, thank God for that. He could have sure passed me by. But I rejoice that he did that, friends. How marvelous and wonderful it is. This is great here listening to this man Samuel. Aren't you glad today you're the Lord's friends? And you're on his side, that you've trusted him as Savior, and that he's for you, he's not against you. He wants to help you. He's a mighty helper, friends, and he's a Savior. Saves to the uttermost. Now, let me move on. This is so wonderful. Now, I read verse 23. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I'll teach you the good and the right way. Now, I have found in this radio ministry that a great many people have a gift, and I believe it's a gift from God, a prayer. I think it's one of the great gifts. I thank God for a group of people in Southern California. God has given to them a ministry, a ministry of prayer. I'm enjoying my greatest ministry today, friends, and I think largely because of the prayers of God's people across this land. It's been wonderful. It's been marvelous to come to Chicago, this great city that I came to as a boy, a stranger. And now today, an old man, I move around, and this fellow shakes hands with me, and he says, you know, I've been praying for you for years. Well, I feel like stopping and weeping and almost getting down on my knees before him, because it's wonderful to pray for others. And Samuel said to the nation, he said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord. It's to sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. And that means each one of us has a prayer responsibility. I feel a great responsibility to pray for a certain group of ministers in this country that are my friends, most of them, but I've been in their churches. I know something of their problems, and I pray for them regularly. I try to, once a week, take my prayer list and I go down that list and remember these men. They're wonderful men of God. And then I have a responsibility to my family. <laughs> if I'm not going to pray for them, who will? And then I have a responsibility to radio. I feel like that I ought to pray about this. I pray about this every day. 
May I say to you that these are wonderful responsibilities. And you have a responsibility, Christian friend, because we need prayer today. And we ought to pray for one another. We have now a group that meet. Our staff's been doing it for a long time. And we take requests that come in, pray for people, a lot of needy people. And they listen to us that they're nice enough to listen to us and write us lovely letters. Certainly we ought to pray for them. God forbid that we'd sin against the Lord, <laughs> ceasing to pray for you. And this is a very wonderful passage of Scripture, by the way. Now he goes on. This is the swan song of Samuel, and it's great. Verse 24, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he's done for you. I haven't been to a football game in a long time, but the last time I went was at the Rose Bowl, in a Rose Bowl game in Pasadena. And I sat next to a man that was rooting for the other team. And I want to tell you, he was a nut. That team would make an inch out on the field. He went to his feet, and you'd think he was having a conniption fit of some kind. My, how he carried on. And I thought, as I looked at that fellow, and he irritated me because he's rooting for the other side. I thought, my, I wish I had that enthusiasm for the things of God. My friend, today we need that, to serve him with all our hearts. Verse 25, But if ye shall still do wickedness, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. What a message this man Samuel gives at this time.